Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week we're Review 2-ing the Unforgettable Fire Tour. Sing for me, Milton Keynes. R-E-M. Bono would just abuse his that man. This is a change of pace. Adam's got the mullet. Judge not ye on appearances. It looks like a dead cat. You can't get much better than that, really. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of Review 2. Today we'll be continuing our journey through the story of U2 Live. I'm Tyler, here with me is Johnny. Say hello, Johnny. Bonjour. We are two bespectacled U2 fans, we love talking about that too, and today we'll be discussing the Unforgettable Fire Tour. But first of all, before we uh, get into our usual U2 reverie, last week, uh, from the time we are recording this, Myself and, and Johnny were in Manchester watching a, a band called Mew, uh, having an absolutely fantastic day. We got to see the band twice in one day mm. um, because we got to go to a, a studio session and then we got to see the, the band live late that night at the Ritz mm. in Manchester. It's a great day, everyone enjoying it, everyone loving the music. Yeah, and we, you know, there was about eight of, the, eight of us there yeah. that day. Um, and then uh, I left Manchester and I was on my way home when I, I found out that uh, there had been uh, a suspected terror attack at the arena in Manchester. And myself and Johnny don't really like it, normally go into anything like this, but it's particularly scary because we were there and uh, it's been quite conflicted in my head. The, the complete juxtaposition of the day we had in Manchester, Manchester playing an absolutely fantastic host of a city as it always does uh, and uh, just to have the you know the, the contrast between the two events and I, I think what we just want to say is what happened in Manchester was wrong it was it was completely wrong it was the absolute worst of humanity on display but through that I, I really truly believe that Manchester reacted in the right way and the best way possible of coming together and being a stronger place uh, in the face of adversity and and I live in Wigan. Johnny lives here in Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just want to really say well done to Manchester and how how much more of a connection I feel to this place now. And I I, I just want to say that I'm quite proud. Um, but it was it wasn't a nice thing to live through. It's not been a nice thing that's continuing to go on. And those people that were involved in that, they weren't doing anything wrong. They were going out to a concert to enjoy live music enjoy spending time with friends and family and that is it for somebody to attack that is just about as low as you can get um but i'm really really proud of everything that's happened since then yeah and i think one of the best things is that we obviously went from and those fans went from an evening of enjoying music that community spirit that comes with attending a gig for everyone singing along I remember going to gigs when I was that age and just being so entranced and so happy that other people liked the same thing and having that group experience. Then obviously we have this horrific attack and I think one of the best things that Manchester has done is responded to it by continuing to reform that community and that's why there's a gig happening this week as we're recording on Sunday um, where Ariana Grande, is that Ariana Grande, yeah. All right, okay. I didn't know if it was a Grande or or Grand. Um, she and all the other artists are kind of coming together 
to continue that and yeah. that's that's the best response I and would say. to continue to be who you are that's the worst thing that you could do in these circumstances change who you are change what you do and what you enjoy doing um you know just continue just keep calm and carry on as you know the old time war saying was but i think it's re- you know it's relevant and mm. i, I am I'm re- I f- at the moment i feel really proud to be from greater manchester at least i know maybe people who live in manchester will say i'm not really from manchester but <laughs> i think i am yeah well much as much as i i hate that keep calm and carry on thing <laughs> i agree i think that's a good thing yeah so i just want to say manchester we love you we live in you and we are very very proud Review 2 is very, very proud to be a part of you. Uh, uh, that's all I have to say. Okay, well, let's carry on with what we normally do, which yep. is talking about music. And this week, we've got the Unforgettable Fire Tour. Hold those horses, Johnny. Oh, go on then. Are uh, they wild? Well, um, we've started a feature for this story of you 2 Live. True. Uh, where we say at the end, is it a gig or is it a show? And we didn't do that last time. Mm-hmm. So for Red Rocks, is it a gig or is it a show? I think it's a show. I think it could have been a gig. There was nothing at the setting up of it which would have suggested that it would become a big theatrical, a big theatrical event. It's easy for you to say. Yeah. Well, I was going to cut out my mispronunciation, but great. <laughs> okay. But. The fact of all the adversity that they faced and all the things that we talked about in the last episode, I think, transformed that gig into a show. So I think this was a show. Okay. I think it's a gig that has, through time, become legendary and has been given honorary show status. But it is a gig. Um, So that's my opinion on Red Rocks. And that's the, 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 the tour I went to. So, oh, with your magical ticket. Yeah, with my magical ticket. Um, so mm. that's that. I've used mine. You've still got yours. So will you be using it today? I'll have to uh, keep my powder dry on that until the very end of the episode when I will tell the audience whether I'll be cashing in my magical ticket, which will render that feature completely useless for the rest of the season. So some tour stats, Okay. Uh, this is the tour to support the release of Unforgettable Fire and go on beyond it. It started on the 29th of August 1984 and ran all the way through to the 25th of July in 1985. This tour had six legs, Johnny. Oh, like an insect. Great. Uh, and 112 shows, which is um, a few more than the war tour, actually. But for the first time, you 2 consistently played in arenas instead of smaller theatres. Um, and sometimes they were doing, you know, this on multiple nights. This was the first, mm. I think this was the first taste of truly headlining that they got. They were, you know, they uh, took up residency in some cities. Yeah, they did. Uh, they played to at least 60,000 people over five shows in Sydney, for example. And I think this is really interesting because this is where the numbers start to shoot up in terms of attendance. So I was looking through all the different stats and trying to get a baseline figure of what generally the shows were. Yeah. But it was anything from 3,000 to 5,000 to 10,000, you know. You can imagine how many um, how many magazines would have been toting this band as the next big thing. Mm. Which, you know, they, they really seem, seem to be doing everything the right way. Uh, the group had reached a level of popularity um, that wasn't as high as they would get, but they're certainly on the way. 
I think there's that a... crowd is certainly into this. Well, they're very dedicated, aren't they? As I mean, again, we're getting this very dedicated audience rather than people who are just drawn in by singles. And as we've said, possibly ad nauseum on this podcast for this season, they're not really having huge hit singles. But that doesn't really matter because they've got like consistency in the live and the live. They've format. not got widespread fame, but I think the people who mm. know about them at this point are really excited. Yeah, and there's a sense of them in the ascendancy here as well, which I think does bring people to the gig. You know, we're always looking out for that band, like, oh, who's going to be the next big thing? And not just in terms of commercial respect, but in terms of who's going to be the next Beatles or Stones or or U2 for us. So, yeah, I think there's a sense of that here. Um, So Leg One was Under Australian Skies. Mm. That's what they called it. Yeah. Doesn't work that well, I don't think. The first time they'd ever played in Australasia. So they were playing New Zealand shows mm-hmm. on the Under Australian Skies tour. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how the New Zealands and the and the Aussies get on, but I, 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 if they were touring Scotland and England and called it the Scottish tour, I think I'd be a bit annoyed at that. Yeah, that wouldn't go down very well, I don't think. Um, although, I guess worth noting here, this is where um, where they met uh, Greg Carroll, who would later be um, commemorated in, in One Tree Hill, so... That's a highlight, I guess, even if they named the tour incorrectly. Yeah. And then leg two, Europe. Leg three, North America. Leg four, Europe. Leg five, North America. Really? Yeah. That's like, mad. That's really strange. And then leg six, European summer tours. Uh, summer festival. Okay. Uh, so they, they, I think they, did, they got invited to do 12 festival gigs and did nine of them. It's a pretty good, pretty good record. Yeah, it just seems strange because these days they're really not a festival act. No, no, not at all. And even when there's sort of rumours around them appearing in a festival context, they generally don't materialise. Obviously, Glastonbury was an exception. Um, but And you could tell that was a major statement for them because they had never really been much of a festival band. Um, they had, including in that festival run, um, the Longest Day concert, which had 50,000 people there. And I just, I really wish I'd, I'd, I'd been to this, uh, oh. this gig. Oh, well, I'm not cashing in my magical ticket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe actually. Having a look at it, I mean, get this for a lineup. I'm not going to say everyone on here, but the Ramones, right? R E M, and U2 in Milton Keynes. 50,000 people. <laughs> Milton Keynes. <laughs> hey, it's got a pretty good. Uh, the, the bowl's pretty good. Sing for me, Milton Keynes. Yeah, it's not as impressive as. Um, what's a cool. Like New York or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but a great gig and 50,000 people there. Milton Keynes, I don't know why it's so funny. Some fans lost. Uh, yeah. Sorry to the people who live in Milton Keynes. Um, Just generally. So, uh, what show are we using as our centrepiece today? Well, it's a bit tricky, really. I mean, we are going to be giving a sense of this tour overall, having gone through the stats and everything. Um, and there are, surprisingly, um, at least surprisingly to me, quite a few concerts online that you can get on, you know, on YouTube to watch um, the Unforgettable Fire Tour. The one we've gone for is um, one that's in Dortmund. So if you just put in uh, Unforgettable Fire Tour Dortmund, you'll, you'll get it, basically. Yeah. And I think that's relatively representative of this tour in general. So um, obviously have a have a watch of that. Pause, go and watch it, come back. <laughs> we'll see you, we'll have a brew now or something like that. I wonder which way people do this. Do they? I imagine most people that listen to this podcast are already really familiar with most of the stuff anyway. But this is an interesting question because... I have never really, despite me loving The Unforgettable Fire, I've never really thought about this tour. And that's because I come from 
a generation. And I know, but you've not I'm been going... encouraged to by the band. It's not as if they go, oh, we've got this DVD that we could release. No, but it's not been available either. I no. mean, um, so they're not going to be saying, oh, check out YouTube. There's some grainy, um, unauthorized footage taken on someone's camera. We you say know. that, but on the Unforgettable Fire box set that I've got, that mm. was the, the 20th anniversary one, um, they brought out, on one of the extra discs, you have a bootlegged version of 11 o'clock TikTok. No, it's terrible. It's you know, it's it's subpar for a YouTube video, but they've put it on there, hmm. and I, and it was that bad. I couldn't even the sound quality was that bad. I didn't even watch all of it, so I don't know if Bono gets up to something memorable. But they just added a eleven o'clock TikTok from from early days as well. Not even from that tour. It was just it was just added on there, and it's I, I don't know why. Well, you always get an impression, and we talked about this with the B sides of sometimes with you two, not always, that's unfair, um, of a sort of cobbled together mentality of like, what can we stick on here? And I don't know whether that's calculated in terms of keep all the good stuff back and eventually we'll release it. Um, but yeah. But it's useful anyway to, to look at this kind of thing because I'd never really watched footage of The Unforgettable Fire as a um, as a tour. The closest I got to that was Wide Awake in America with obviously um, bad and the sort of homecoming, and that was about it, really. So it was fascinating to go back and watch the band in this kind of transitionary phase. Obviously, they're moving from that early trilogy of albums and drawing a line under war to a new and distinct phase of the band, one influenced by Brian Eno, but also by a different maturity there. Yeah, but all that in terms of a live sense, I I think leaves them looking a bit lost. I think they're trying to figure things out. Oh, certainly, yeah. The, the, there's certainly some growing pains on show in this tour. Because um, there is a bit of a contrast between the first th- the stuff on the first three albums and the new material on mm. Unforgettable Fire. Um, and we'll I'll, I'll discuss this throughout the Dortmund show, but it makes for an interesting watch. Well, you speak of growing pains as well. The Australian leg of the tour was apparently very, very frustrating for the band. So I'm going back to our friend uh, Eamon Dunphy on this. He basically rates... Are you friends with him now? No, I just really like his um, his book, um, uh, Unforgettable Fire, which I guess is very appropriate for this week at least. So he says that Australia was a disaster. So although you had these 60,000 people over five shows uh, come to watch them in Sydney and more than 30,000 turn, turn up to see them in Melbourne, the music, and this is done for here the music created with Eno just didn't work live Wire was impossible in concert and his evaluation is basically that they'd spent so long in the studio working on all these new textures and things like that the stuff that I love about Unforgettable Fire they didn't really know how to bring that across live still maybe early days for them in terms of using sequences and things like that and extra guitarists I mean we're not going to get um Dallas uh, Edge's guitar tech under the stage at this at this point, you know, um, as we do in in concerts now, you know, and, and other people playing instruments for them. Can I just mention? Yeah. Uh, the I think it's uh, Bono's tech guy, who I think you know his name, don't you? I think it's Stephen Iredale. I can't say it's definitely him on all the footage and not necessarily another uh, you know kind of assistant, but yeah, I think it's him. Well, basically, on any early U two tour. Mm. He's the guy that when Bono drops the microphone, just wherever he is, does that 1980s mic drop to go and fart around with the audience. 
He's the guy that is running on stage or crawling on stage, trying not to get on camera. Sorting his lead out. Just to make sure Bono's lead's in the right place, that he can always get access to his microphone. If he goes into the crowd, he's the guy that brings the microphone to him. Mm. He works tirelessly. And it's quite... An, if, you, if you're into drinking games, you just have a drink. Every time that guy is seen diving across the stage just to make sure Bono's got, you know, hits his mark and everything. He is the hardest working guy in the U2 crew at this point. Yeah, although he must have been a bit worried when uh, wireless mics started to be used more and more often. Because he's going to be put out of a job. I, I bet he was relieved. I bet he was th- funding it. Everything he got paid, he put into wireless mics. <laughs> uh, Bono would just abuses that man. And it he, he does show that Bono is still, even though he's been kind of told off a little bit, about um, his kind of foolish character of, of going going nuts, you know, and, and flying up to the top of canvases and things like that and climbing uh, literally hundreds of feet in the air. Um, it shows that he's he is reining it in a bit, but he's also still going a bit, a bit you know, kind of crazy on stage. Yeah, it, it, it makes for an interesting watch because this is... Um, uh... This is a a transition and is transition. Ugh. This is a transitioning time for you two. Okay, so just to give us a sense of this tour in general, um, and the way that you two's reputation is changing, I'd just like to go through a couple of reviews of some of the shows from early on in the tour and interviews and things like that, and just a general journalistic reaction to you two, who have always been seen as quite an earnest band one that have a kind of interesting from a journalistic point of view relationship with things like Christianity and their um, the kind of worthiness and the causes that they champion in the sometimes sneery kind of rock and roll world and how that maybe is either changing or or maturing into something that journalists are seeing as well maybe in the early days you two were a bit worthy but at least they weren't kind of like rock dinosaurs they were still a bit new wave and a bit punky in their energy so in an interview with Gavin Martin, um, the band really seemed to have to defend themselves. And this was after Pride had been released and they've had their first kind of, you know, top five single, got to number three, which is interesting. And Gavin Martin says that Bono likens his banner waving, all the kind of, you know, the flags and things like that, which were still going on in the in the Unforgettable Fire Tour, and the speaker stack climbing into an artist's broad brushstrokes. He just sees it as pompishness signifying delusions of grandeur. <laughs> so, and I think that's interesting that early on, this dynamic is set up of Bono saying, well, what we're doing here are big, you know, kind of artistic strokes with these big ideas like freedom and peace. And the critic is saying, this is just, you've got a messiah complex. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's weird that that's set up so early on. Um, 1984, October, this is... No, from. because I think Bono's always dreamed big. That's And that's the thing. And out loud. And they were they were young. And this show we're reviewing tonight, the 25, 26. Mm. Larry might have been 24, but it's like that's that's young, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's very young, and to be to be saying that stuff. Mm. I mean, I think that's the same age as like One Direction are now. So if they started doing that, they're very lyrically complex and mature, though. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't listen <laughs> to their music, but um, neither do I. I'm just taking. But a pop that's shot. the kind of that's the kind of thing that the, the younger. Guys, you're not you're almost not allowed to say that. Mm. You know, you're not allowed to have ideas until you're about thirty. Yeah, especially not these, not taking on these big ideas. No, but they should be, at this age. They should be smashing up the stage and doing a lot of drink and drugs, but not for them. No. Speaking of this, then um, we got another impression from a critic, David Quantic from the Brixton Academy show. He calls you two. I mean, it's pretty easy to see where he stands because his first line is, 
the most boring band in the world. He's very, very unimpressed with the live show. He says, dry ice spreads around Mork's feet for Sunday Bloody Sunday. And I was like, who's Mork? Do you know who he's referring to, though? Robin Williams? Yeah, exactly. So even early on, the Robin Williams uh, comparisons must have been creeping in as well. Right. But I didn't think he looked much like uh, Mork at that point. No, there was a point but uh, where they did look similar at the same time. Mm. But th- I would say that's mid-90s where Bono... I don't know. He just started to look a bit like Robin Williams for a little bit. I think he grew out of it. Well, I think he was yet to grow into it, but Quantic's drawn the dots here. Um and he's also said, the audience lap it up. Even as we leave, rugby players disguised as serious music fans are chanting, how long must we sing this song? I really don't like uh, Quantic's points here. I mean, the idea, A, that if you're a rugby player, you have to not be a serious music fan. But also it's, I think he's just but very it's sneery. it's easier to criticise what's popular. But they weren't that popular here, were they? I they, guess. they were, they're getting there. They, obviously, they're not stratospheric like they were in a... A few years' time. I guess they had momentum here, at least. Yeah, like mm. they're, they're the easy targets because they're what that's what everybody likes. Well, continuing this uh, critical strain, Cynthia Rose of the uh, of the Dallas Reunion Arena gig in '84 again says, "This is the wrong sort of pride that Bono is um, exuding. This is still didacticism at mega decibel levels, and getting big is really wrong for the band. She doesn't want to see them get big." So we're getting the same thing from a lot of critics. This kind of duality between the audience clearly loving it, you know, singing and enjoying it, and the critics being very sniffy and sneery. And I just I found it interesting going back through this how familiar all this sounds. Really, it's this idea that the the music journalists, the people who see themselves as, as being serious music critics, um, just you too. <laughs> well, I, I do not see myself as that. Um, but they, they see themselves as that. But then they can't. Um, it's so at odds with the the energy in the room. It's almost like they're having to excuse the fact that the music is so powerful by saying, well, it's not very good though, is it? You know, it's, it just, it's, it's interesting that that's set up. What, how long are we now? Like 23 years. And plus like, this is a a bit of a change. This is a bit of a change in um, personality and attitude from, from you two. We start to see the first little examples of, of Bono having a character. Mm. And uh, the the concert having little choreographed segments and little parts where Bono will slowly you know walk up to the the microphone and mm. there's an atmosphere being set. So they are breaking away from what they're known for. So a critic is going to either love it, love it or hate it. Yeah, and they start to see elements of kind of calculation and planning and things like but, that into you know at this at this time you two have been around for about four years mm. it's four years since boy and they so we're used to seeing you two change and um do something different change the the genre change the the sound mm. at this point they weren't used to that they thought uh boy to war was what you two did and would continue to do but you two are constantly looking for that next big thing or that next um, amazing idea of originality. Yeah, that sort of collective band identity. So that I, I'm not towards. surprised that you know people would they they were trying to stereotype them and pigeonhole them. And yeah, you two have never been a band that you can comfortably do that. I don't know what you two are. <laughs> I and and delving deeper into the music, 
hasn't clarified that for me. It makes go, it more complex, really, if anything. Yeah, you can say, okay, so for this, for these three albums here, they were this thing, but for the next three albums, oh, they went way over there and did something else. So these guys don't have have the benefit of hindsight. They can't no. see that you two are trying out something different here. They just think, oh, you two have got a bit of fame, and now they're doing this, and it's crap. Because it's not what brought them to the dance, really. Yeah, I think that is the overall sense. It's that this is it's bad that a band who were part of an anti-dinosaur movement have, are starting to become a bit more earnest and, and worthy. But I do think the show's come across like that. There are parts in this show where... Like, like the Dirtman show that we're going to discuss, they play a lot of older songs, songs mm. from the first three albums. And the crowd go absolutely crazy for that, but the band don't look that impressed about playing them. And then yeah. when the band are really giving it their all on songs like Bad, the crowd are not great. Hmm. I suppose we've learned they're, they're, to... they're not crazy, you know, like like they should be going. Like I, I started watching it, and they, I forget what the first few songs are on this. I will follow... Uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday and Cry and the crowd are going crazy and then as soon as MLK kicks in mm. silence well that's I guess where you're getting a, me- a meeting of the old and the new together here mm. really so that's I think that's there's the... no story through the gig at this point no what they have is a, is a strong collection of songs but I agree quite an eclectic mix there yeah um, so where is it when's it happening Okay, so this gig, it's on the second leg of the Unforgettable Fire Tour. It's in Dortmund, Germany. The attendance is 15,000 or thereabouts in a capacity venue of 17,000. So pretty big gig. Yeah, the, al- the album's out. The album came out on the on October the 1st. Yeah. Um, so Enough it, time to get used to the album. Yeah. Unlike earlier shows at some point, you know. Um, so capacity in the Westfalenholm. I just said this. Oh, did you? Right. <laughs> Uh, is uh, yeah, sixteen and a half thousand people. Yep, I said thereabouts. <laughs> right. Um, well, that's not exact. And the set. What do you think of the set? Well, this is a bit interesting because I, I don't think they're very good at picking <laughs> openers. We discussed this with the ocean, and then again with. Uh, oh wait, no, out of control was good. I think all the way through we've said like a song like, um, I will follow. Yeah, would be a great opener. We, I think we said that on the previous two episodes. Mm. That's the kind of song you need to play to get the crowd going. Mm. But they come out to, um, on this tour, broadly speaking, they come out to 4th of July as a kind of an atmospheric song. Now, I like that. Presumably you wouldn't be happy about that very much. Um, What song? 4th of July. Definitely not. <laughs> no. Okay, well, I think it's good as an atmospheric piece, but then they go they go from that, generally speaking, into eleven o'clock TikTok, which Edge has got a weird effect on his guitar as well. Um, it seems to be some sort of he's tried to double up his guitar a little bit with a higher pitch. I mean, I might be wrong on that, but that's what it sounds like. It sounds different to the earlier recordings, particularly the one on Under Blood Red Sky. And I just don't, I don't see. 11 o'clock TikTok as an, an opener to any gig. I don't... No. I love the song. It shouldn't be an opener, which is why on the YouTube version to the gig we're talking about, if this seems a bit strange, um, it begins with I Will Follow, which is the correct decision. Of mm. course you should start there. 
so the set, not the set list, the the stage set. In the background, you've got um, a picture which I think was in the album art for Unforgettable Fire, like a, a negative photo of trees, and it's black and white. Mm-hmm. It was like kind of shadows and tall trees. It reminded me of. Oh no! But that that one black and white image behind Larry, and they've just got a normal rectangular stage, no walkway for Bono. Um. And and it's pretty burr and barren, yeah. And very 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 vanilla to look at. There's nothing interesting going on. Well, I've just looked at my um, my the stage section of notes, and I've just got. Is it barren? <laughs> like the stage. Well, yeah, actually, it is actually just a pretty much empty rectangle. Yeah, it's which sums it up. It's it's bad. Well, yeah, uh, it's. <laughs> I mean. And they had, they had. I guess what they wanted to do, and I'll try and defend this, but what they wanted to do was strip back everything, keep it minimalist, don't have any distractions on the stage. So they're not, you know, Yes or Pink Floyd or anything like that. They want to keep it black and white lighting, keep it quite serious. And then whenever colour was used, it would be quite effective. But that makes for quite a dull show, yeah, doesn't it? it does, it does. Uh, not great. And things don't improve with uh, the attire of the band either. We're on to the swag then. So, let's start off with Adam Clayton. First of all, Adam Clayton is now supporting a mullet. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's mullets all round, isn't it? Apart from Larry, who said, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I think Bono and Adam certainly have a mullet. Don't know how to describe the edges, her. That's an attempted mullet. Right. Well, fair enough. <laughs> um, so, Adam's got the mullet. A yellowy check shirt and black pants. That's yeah. the least cool Adam's ever looked. He does. Yeah, what does he? He yeah. could come on stage in his pajamas and look amazing. So, I feel like they were trying. There was no consistency here with what they were trying to be or look like. No, but uh, they look like they've walked through a fancy dress shop together, and they've all just gone down a separate aisle and picked something out. And then the hairdresser has attacked three of them. Larry got away quickly. I mean, you know, thank God, and has avoided <laughs> having a, an, impo- an imposed mullet on his head. Um, who wins the Battle of the Mullet? He couldn't have a mullet, though. Who? Larry. No, no, that's true. Because everybody would call him Larry Mullet Jr. <laughs> I thought you meant just because he's got shot. No, hair, he's but... not allowed to have one. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's in the rules. Um, who do you think wins the Battle of the Mullet? Then? Who who's looks best? Because I'd say... Oh, it's I'd... bad at this point. Bono's mullet on Red Rocks looks great. It really looks good, but now it looks a bit overgrown and... In parts, but then quite... It looks like a dead cat. Yeah, I'd go... Yeah, I think, I think they've, they've gone past the point where they need them all at, at this point. No one ever needs one, ever. <laughs> I would say. It was the 80s. Um, so I guess Adam looks better, but it's still the worst he's ever looked. Yeah. I, he's got his shirt tucked in as well to his trousers with a belt. I think it might be. He looks like a supply teacher, so I don't, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. The leather pants have come out for Bono as well. Yeah, um, Bono's all in black, which would never really go away now that he's he's got the black. Yeah, kind of. He, that, that's his look, and he look he looks good from the legs down. He's the fly. Yeah, he's got the leather look leggings, mm. which I'm not a big fan of, but fine. He's a rock star. I'm not. Uh, long sleeve t shirt, uh, long sleeve shirt. Sorry, that then turns into a sleeveless shirt. <laughs> uh, and, and I like to think that you know those pants that you can unzip the bottoms of. Yeah, I like to think he just un. 
unzipped the, unzipped the sleeves. Off. Yeah, let a bit of the um, the stink out halfway through the show. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it's practical, I suppose, and I'm all in favour of practical clothing. So, calf high boots, right? And as an accessory, a white towel. <laughs> is it an accessory? Is it just sort of necessity? Well, he plays around with it and drapes it over the microphone. It's it it. it it's not hygienic, is it? It it plays into the the show. Okay, yeah, no, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, so it, if there was a Bono action figure from this era, hmm. the white towel would be the accessory supplied with that action figure. And no one would buy it. I, I think I would. Only could be discounted the, that's compared the, that's to the, the fly. kind of tat that I would buy. Okay, well maybe this can be an interesting uh, ongoing feature. What would Bono's <laughs> accessory be at that point? That's a good one. We can keep that going. Yeah. Um. And speaking of games, let's play the game of. What do we think Larry Mullen Jr. is wearing on stage? Would you like a drum roll? I mean, I know what he's wearing. Would you like to guess? Uh, is it some blue jeans and a white t-shirt? Let me just check. Yes. Oh, good. Okay, great. Good. Well, that's that all sorted then. Um, I would say, as an overall feel, if we're done you know, kind of discussing the intricacies of, of, of leather pants and whatnot... Or have you still got something else? No, 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 I'm fine. Overall, I'd say they do have a sort of different stance, though, about them. Something has changed here. Maybe it's the fact that they've, they've secure now, financially speaking. None of them, technically, will ha- have to be a... That's interesting you say that. Why? Because have you seen how the edge is dressed? <laughs> well, I don't. Well, th- just because they're financially solvent and they've got a good career ahead of them, pretty much guaranteed, mm. doesn't mean someone who's level-headed and rational and thrifty like the edge is necessarily going to go out and waste all his money on he looks he looks like he's just come from a job interview did he get it um i think he probably turned it down Mm. but he doesn't look cool he's got an oversized white t-shirt on and black trousers well that's not rock and roll well maybe he's a guitarist in one of the hottest bands in the world right now and that's what he's wearing no it's not a diss just on him because they all look bad apart from larry who (laughs) You know, he's like Bart Simpson. He's, you know, he's he's got his outfit. I'd like to see Larry Mullen's wardrobe. I mean, I can imagine exactly what it is: mm. blue jeans, white t-shirt, blue jeans, white t-shirt, blue jeans, white t-shirt. Mm. Never, ne- never, ever needs to change. But the edge looks bad. Yeah, but part of the th- thing I like, about- and and I don't think he did get the job to be honest, because on the next tour he does look a bit like a homeless person. <laughs> well, what I would say is overall, Edge's look is a culmination of him. Not really knowing what to do, and to be fair, he's younger than us, and I still don't really know how to dress. But no, uh, but if that you're right, so but let's say the edge is 24, 25 at this point, right? Yeah. We're the same age. We're in the eighties. We don't know who you two are. That guy walks into the pub. We're gonna laugh at him because we're <laughs> stood there looking all cool and trendy like we do. Yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to be laughing at, at him. I know what you mean. He doesn't look good even for the times. No, he doesn't. But I think judge not ye on appearances. And just as a counter to that, the great thing about Edge is that he looks terrible for early on in the career, <laughs> and then he gets mega cool in two thousand and one. Two thousand and one hits, and he refuses to age from that point. Yeah, he passes all his agingness to Adam. No, to Larry. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Well. I say 1991 is where we hit peak edge, and when he when I think it's I think one day he was walking through town feeling a bit glum about his fashion choices. This section's gone on a while, hasn't it? <laughs> it has, and yeah. he and suddenly he turns, and in the shop in the front window there's this beanie, and it's just sitting there calling to him, saying, "Dave, 
Wormy. <laughs> the, and the, from that point on, he looks great. Well, the attire and the stage play into the general feel of the show. True. Uh, it were in in the in the and they're not spoiling anything here. In the fact that you're sat there thinking, what the hell am I watching? We discussed earlier before we were we were on a um, that whenever we go to YouTube and find a new U two video, we there's a sense of trepidation. Yeah. You you never know what you're about to see. Is it going to be the best thing you've ever seen, or is it is it just going to oh god I wish I hadn't watched that but I can't look away now that I am watching it. It's it's one of those things. Mm. Uh, and there were some really good bits in this show. Yeah. Let's get on to talking about the actual the set. Yeah. The set. So, so it is a bit truncated on the um, on the I YouTube run video. The, the playlist, the set list first. Yeah, can, have you got the in, entire set list? Because as I say, the one that's on YouTube is it was presented. I've 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 got the set list of the video, which I think is all we need. Okay, fine. Okay, so uh, it's I will follow Sunday Bloody Sunday Cry, Electric Co, MLK Bad October New Year's Day Pride in the Name of Love Gloria and Forty. Actually, I think that's everything just apart from the intro. That's weird, isn't it? Oh well, there we go. Well, fair enough. Um, so that's the show. I don't think that's the, that's only forty five minutes. I don't think it's the full show. Well, they must have missed something off. But it's a it's a it's a solid set list, I would say overall. Yeah, and it's it's um an interesting watch. Uh, the crowd are going crazy when they play. I will follow. Yep, uh, absolutely. To the point where I thought I'd love to be in that crowd. And I don't like standing up at gigs, but the, mm. the energy that you can you can see there is is great. Um. Sunday Bloody Sunday kicks in, uh, suddenly sounds more professional, a lot less raw than than Red Rocks. Yeah. Um, slower, but there is added quality th- th- from that. The, the The focus now is on performing music to the best of your ability, mm. not rushing things. Um, well, I think you get a real sense here that Bono's voice is not going to squeak in the middle of he's something in like Sunday Bloody Sunday. Yeah, he's in control completely. Yeah. Um, Cry into Electric Co. So this is track three. Um, Bono looks like he doesn't care. About what? About singing this song or this part of the show. I think I, I think he comes across as being over that song at the, at that point. But this is where he does his um, antics of going up the side of the stage, isn't it? Um, yeah. And and up to the balcony, and and very weirdly singing amazing grace now i get that if you're in <laughs> dallas why are you singing that in dortmund it's a bit odd to be honest i mean i just don't really understand why pick a different Amer- song unforgettable fire american uh, americana that's that's what they were going for at this point um but it's mm. bono if you've not seen what we're talking about climbs up basically the first tier of seats which have a cover on a, pl- mm. a, like a plastic or wooden cover very shiny and, and slippery and yeah. he actually has trouble getting up there he needs a hand because I don't think his shoes have got any grip on them he should have bought more practical footwear he, he should have considered what he was doing I mean he could have looked very foolish if he'd have fallen over mm. but he gets help to get up there and uh, dances with one of the interesting looking girls in the crowd and I then I wanted Bono to do a you know slide down on his bum. Yeah, I thought he was going to do that. Yeah, because I thought he he'll be cautious and he won't do it. But he did something far cooler, and and I was disappointed. I for for a minute I wanted Bono to be a bit more of a nerd, uh, than than he probably is. Well, I didn't think he looked like cool. He sort of totters down. He he stays on his feet, which yeah. is impressive. 
you, I would have preferred him to slide down and say weed like Edge does yeah, in Rattle Yeah, that's Hunt. exactly what I was thinking. But then again, leather pants, you're probably going to get bad traction on that. Maybe yeah. if someone had handed him a burlap sack, like on a Helter Skelter, he could have come down. Um, but that was interesting, and it didn't ruin the song. He was still able to sing it. He got the, um, his, his mic yeah. tech got the microphone up to him. He does seem very confident at this point, you know. Yeah, he does, and he sounds he sounds absolutely amazing. Um, but this is the the first three songs, really, or, or four if you count "Cry" as its own individual thing. I don't. I, I don't really. Um, they they seem to be a lot more professional, but they do seem bored with doing this kind of stuff, which is why I, I found it interesting they didn't start with a sort of homecoming. And and do two or three songs from the album and then play some of the hits. Yeah, this is a bit. I again, we're back to this whole setlist decision, and yeah. obviously this is subjective. There's no objective way of saying, "Oh, this is what you two should have done." That kind of thing. It's just what we p- would prefer. But again, I think it's what we do in that circumstance as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe there is a comfort to the fact that okay, first song we're gonna do. We've done this song so many times. I mean. TikTok is so, such an early song, an early classic. It's a fan favourite. They could play it in their sleep. And I guess there's a security to that. Whereas if they'd begun with a sort of homecoming, then there's jeopardy Why do you on keep that. mentioning 11 o'clock TikTok? Because, as I said, at the start of the show, they begin with 11 o'clock TikTok. But the That's br- not on. Yeah, it's not. it wasn't yeah. broadcast as, as part of that. Yeah, okay. Quite an interesting version of MLK as well on this um, on this particular gig. We've got some alternate or additional keyboard. Yeah, very Brian, uh, Brian Eno-esque. Um, I know that they were struggling to get this record to sound right live. Mm. Um, so I think sometimes they, they would add some things. And there's just a little bit of added synth, which I've never heard after. Nope. But I think kind of works and is, is interesting. And it's an interesting sound for you too. Yeah. But even further away um, from what the known for at this point yeah and there must have been some fans who were thinking well, what's what's going on yeah the, the fans have not been prepared for this i mean this isn't how it sounds on the record <laughs> this isn't you know this isn't like anything they've ever heard from you two before this is very much a, a um a shot in the dark from you two yeah i like the idea of them being sent little memos in the post by the way yeah halfway through the gig we're gonna do this don't be alarmed just go with it yeah so i don't know if they did this every night of the tour but they they did this this night yeah and i don't hate it so well listeners what do you think um let's have a little a little listen So there we go. Yeah, then. I think we've heard yeah. enough of that. What's it sounding like Bono said sleeve rather than sleep? <laughs> we'll have to listen back to, to see that. Yeah, yeah. But I do like the sound that Edge has got on that uh, synthesizer. Sounds a bit uh, craftworky almost. Yeah, but they never used that sound. No. And and it did kill the audience dead, that music. I, mean, I don't know if it put them in a trance. In a good way or a bad way, yeah. 
Uh, They're very reverent. Uh, it's a very reverent song. Yeah, isn't I just it? think this is a crowd for the War album more than a crowd for the Unforgettable Fire album. But mm. these things take time. It does take time to get into an album and, and, and source it out and know what it's about. And if I had seen a band, say three, t- say if I was a really hardcore um, U2 fan who'd come to this gig, possibly a German one or, or someone from that surrounding area, or even um, a Brit abroad or anything, and I really, really loved seeing those early gigs, this is a change of pace. And I'd like to think that I would have been like, oh, this is good. I, I'm enjoying this uh, change. I'm liking the fact that there are stiller moments in this. A bit like October, as we were mentioning, but a lot more of that. So I mentioned before that the... Um, the time spent down under on the Australian tour had been pretty bad um, in terms of how the band had evaluated the gigs and this overall sound. But apparently one of the early victories or the, the, the few victories that came out of that was that they learnt how to play bad live properly. Playing it differently than as it appears on The Unforgettable Fire with sequences and things like that. And just bringing it across into this momentous thing that would later go on, as we'll discuss later, to you know, kind of define a moment of, of Live Aid. So what did you think about, about Bad here then? Uh, bad, bad, like uh, I said on the, the last episode, Bad is, is like New Year's Day in that it's a little flag in the direction of you 2 It's like it, everything worked. Mm. And I think New Year's Day was the first time we saw that from you 2 and then Bad is the next song that does that where everything just clicks and it's this amazing moment whenever you see it live. Mm. Not necessarily a song that you two are known for in the mainstream, but it's just a great song that is always a pleasure to hear. Mm. Um, and in several tours time, we'll get to see that performed probably the best way it's ever going to be performed. But here, it really works. And it's just a shame that the crowd don't really seem into it because they're not that familiar with it. Yeah, that that's the that's the shame of of this. But Bono puts his heart and soul into singing it, um, and apparently it's around this time where he started to kind of publicly acknowledge, and he hadn't even apparently thought about this, about how much the song is about heroin and is about addiction and things yeah. like that, um, which apparently sort of surprised him as much as anyone else when he started to sing it live. He worked that out. And maybe that's why he put so much into it and why this song became such a live staple, you know, even for an audience unfamiliar with it. I have to say, though, about this version, uh, I don't know if it sounds better on the record because the audience aren't really adding anything to it. Mm. Um, so it might sound better on the record at the moment. Do you mean on uh, Wide Awake or on... on oh, on Wide Awake, it sounds amazing. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely amazing, but it, I mean The Unforgettable Fire. Oh, I see. Just right. judging off this live performance yeah. in Dortmund... I think it sounds better on the record. If the crowd had got it mm. and were really into it, then then it would have been a different story. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so just to follow up on my point from Bad, the, uh, later in the show, the band do play New Year's Day and the crowd is so much more into this, uh, so much more into the older material. Uh, I'm beginning to think that Bad is one of you two's... Uh, sorry, New Year's Day is one of you two's best songs. That From this journey, the the, the story of live, mm. uh, that's the song that has, has really started you know, hammering home to me, just how, how good it is. And mm. I've kind of underappreciated that song through the years. Yeah, well, it combines catchiness at various points. I mean, that main riff, obviously it was catchy enough to be turned into a, a good dance music song. Um, I think it was very Corsten, but I'm not sure. Um, 
it's catchy, but it's also got that absolutely epic, you know, kind of sound. And I mean, what song can you hum the bass line and people will know it straight away? There's not that not that many of them comparative to, you know, little keyboard hooks or vocal hooks, you know, so... Yeah, it really, it really, really works. That'll be my um, highlight as well, actually. But ju- it's just, it's really interesting because I think in two years' time, three years' time with the Joshua Tree tour, I think fans are going to be going... It's going to be a different set of fans. It's It's going to be... Uh, a, a group of U2 fans that want to hear the stuff off Unforgettable Fire, that want to hear the stuff off Joshua Tree, and aren't that bothered about the earlier albums. Mm. Um, so I think this this just all it's just all part of that transition period that U2 were in at, at the time, and because of it, I think this gig suffers. Uh, there are no particular lowlights, I don't think. I, I, I don't think October has much effect here. And on Red Rocks, I said it was a very special moment and really worked. Um, I think it's a half-decent gig. Um, but unfortunately, Bono and the boys don't seem to want the same show as the audience do. And that's mm. the problem with this show. Yeah, I mean, much as it pains me to say it, Edge feels a bit more static as well on this on this show. Seems to have almost become weirdly they, more reserved than he than They he, don't know who they are at this point. No, they've been pushed in a new direction by a new producer, and I do think that they were pushed. Mm. Um, I don't think they went there willingly. Well, they went to Brian willingly, but then I think he wanted us quite a bit of control, which is which is fair enough. That's yeah. his that's his job. Well, shall we move on to talking about Wide Awake in America then? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're going to cover similar ground here um, because we do have an album with bad and the sort of homecoming on it recorded in england not in america yeah well this is um again i'm i'm finding much as i'm enjoying this u2 live journey i'm getting very jaded here red rocks isn't what i thought it was and neither is this (laughs) but not even a sort of a little bit of a um falsity a complete fabrication yeah i'm beginning to think bono isn't his real name (laughs) Um, the other difficulty with reviewing Wide Awake in America is A, we've kind of done it before with the two main songs, which we both love, as in songs, not live versions. Pains me to say this, but let's not talk about Love Comes Tumbling and uh, Three Sunrises. Exactly. Go back to the 80s B side one if you'd like yeah. to hear that. Um, the other annoying thing about this, though, is everything I was going to say, I'd written down in my notes, you know, so about it not being in America and other things, has already been saying by said by James Henk, or Henker, the guy who's reviewed it online. I can't remember who for. Which is kind of annoying, really, because I don't feel like I have anything unique to say about this gig, really. Um, Those are two really good versions they uh, are. of two really good songs. Uh, and I, I would imagine for a long time that, that the version of Bad on that CD or record, however you bought it, was the definitive version. That's the word that was going through my head, definitive. It's the definitive version of A Sort of Homecoming, but fingers crossed we'll get to see that on the Joshua Tree Tour 2017. I would like to, yes. Um, that that CD is my favourite thing to put on. I don't do it all the time, mm. but I know I know when to, when to do it because I, I know for half an hour, however long it is, I don't think it's even that, I think it's like mm. 12, 15 minutes, something... It's just a pleasure to listen to. It's I, I feel completely comfortable just giving myself to that record for a bit mm. and just really enjoying really, really great music. Um, well, it's so consistent, isn't it? I mean, obviously it's short, but it's very, yeah, very and consistent. And I would imagine that's 
on leg four, um, the second European leg, were they the album's been out a little longer and people have chan- had had chance to get into it, and maybe some people go and watching you two for the first time because mm. it's hard to ignore that that song's one of the best songs ever. That they, especially one of the best songs they've produced to date. Yeah. So. Well, I remember, I mean, I probably said this on the earlier episode. Um, I remember a uh, in a guitar magazine, rather than a general music magazine, a rock magazine, someone saying um, that when Edge, on that live version of Bad, plays the guitar, you know, when it, it reaches that crescendo, and it's just doing quite simple, you know, kind of, it's not using distortion, you know, not using much trickery apart from a bit of delay and a bit of reverb. He was saying that that is more powerful in terms of guitar than an army of James Hetfield, you know, and this is the thing that that really defines edge it's about the context of the song the subtlety yeah the build-up and not going hell for leather and it works so well um on a sort of homecoming this is a bit weird because this is a very rare occasion where the live version is actually cleaner than the recorded version if you think back to um unforgettable fire on uh, sorry homecoming on unforgettable fire it's drenched in lots of different things, which it's I love. The, pr- the, pr- the production quality of the live shows is where it's at with you two at this point. Mm. Um, they, they sound amazing. They start really investing in, in the production of the live show. Speaking of which, Tony Visconti uh, produced the actual um, version of A Sort of Homecoming. Right. And he's well known for working with um, Eno and Bowie. Really, really great producer. And he's responsible for the audience sounding so good on this song so mm. one of the fav- one of my favorite things about listening to this version is you can't really hear the audience very much and then just the right amount yeah he i mean it's so he's noted as just fading it in at the right time you know and you've got the clapping starting and it hits so hard you can't get much better than that really no absolutely not um let's move on next to live aid uh, which is in the summer of 1985, introduced by Jack Nicholson. <laughs> uh, I can't do a Jack Nicholson impression, can you? No, not on the spot. Uh, well, fair enough. Um, very excited Wembley to see you two play. Hmm. They that was um, everybody was clapping. Um, it was it was kind of crazy because they they were on really early in the day. Yeah. At that gig. Um, do you think they were on in a slot that? befit their status at they that time. They were on uh, in a slot where they could put, also put them on in America. Ah, oh, clever. Because um, they had a, a huge following in America. Well, you want the fans to be wide awake in America. Yeah, so Jack Nicholson introduces them, I think, from Florida. Um, and then they go live to the live stream from, from Wembley. Mm. Uh, good gig. Interesting. Um... Not much to say, really, that it we can add here. It doesn't feel like a U2 show, because it isn't a U2 show. No. They, they go on there, they make an impact, Bono jumps off the off the stage to dance with people, the whole band get annoyed with him, but that's the thing that worked, and that's the thing that people remembered him for. So, you know, it worked. it's all been said before about Live Aid, it changed their lives, it changed their career. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy watching it, but it's not something I go to all the time. Yeah, weirdly, it's something that non-U2 fans talk to me about probably quite a lot. When, when they agree to speak to me, they, it's what they would bring up uh, more often than other stuff. It's very stuff. mainstream and very commonplace, though, isn't it? It's, 
it's Live Aid. It's it's you know it was the most successful show of the eighties. Everybody watched it. Everybody saw it. Everybody heard about it. Mm. So it's something they know about and they feel informed about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not it's not anything major really. No, I yeah I don't I really have anything else to add to it. Um, big shirt from the edge. Yeah, another job interview. Okay, so now we're up to the Amnesty International A Conspiracy of Hope series of concerts. Uh, And mainly we'll be talking about the, I think it's the final night in New Jersey at Giant Stadium. Yeah, final night. So I just want to talk about the set briefly um, because we just talked about Live Aid and the Unforgettable Fire tour. I feel this looks more like a U2 gig. Yeah, it does. Than the previous two things. You'd we, mistake we... it from what, for one from a distance. Yeah. Um, and they play four songs. Four U2 songs, that is. And then a load of covers. Mm. What's that about? <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of the set list, they are obviously doing the more politically hard-hitting songs. That makes sense, given this context. Of course, if you're doing a gig... For Amnesty International, you're going to be doing Sunday Bloody Sunday, Pride, you know, that kind of thing. And that, that makes total sense. But then, is it four covers in total that they do? It's quite a lot of covers. It, at least, what, 40% of the gig? At least half of the gig is covers. Yeah. Um, so, Which is really strange. And this is... They're not taking advantage of this opportunity the way they, they could be doing. Why do you think... If I was a crowd member, I'd just be a bit... Mm. Yeah, but then again, okay, let's recontextualize this. This is for a lot of different people. I mean, who else was present at this at this whole gig? Uh, Sting and the police. The police reunited for the last three shows. Yeah, uh, you had Brian Adams, um, Little Stephen. Mm. You had a lot of other people. Um, yeah, I mean that's I, I can't, Lou Reed. I can't, Lou Reed. Yeah, I, I can't remember everybody. Uh, but no doubt Billy Joel was around. But having said that. That makes sense in terms of why they may have pick, picked a few cover versions. So, I get the, un- yeah, the. But if you go and watch Billy Joel, you don't just want four Billy Joel songs and then a load of covers, do you? No, true. Um, this is maybe the roots of something that we didn't enjoy, <laughs> and well, I didn't enjoy definitely. This is the worst example of something we didn't enjoy. <laughs> um, but what we identified with Rattle and Hum. We have always spoke about that kind of occurring after Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree was something great, and then it got exaggerated and became bad. I'm getting hints of, but poor... I'm less annoyed by the, the Love Town tour and Rattle and Hum, and uh, I'm less annoyed by that than I am about this gig because Bono is full on Mr. McFisto, but he's not being ironic here. That he's trying to be quite. Yeah, but he wasn't Ernest. being ironic in um, in Rattle and Hum either. No, but I, th- I just I just think it's worse here. <laughs> um, well, I mean, he's there are those flashes of Rattle and Hum, so you can you can I don't think we said this, but you can go and find this gig online. By the way, um, I think he, I think he toned it down for Rattle and Hum. But you still got the exact same thing of him picking up the light and shining it on the audience yeah. um, in the middle of Maggie's Farm, which is not a good cover version <laughs> for them to do at all. It's a it's a bad song choice, and I just they shouldn't yeah. be doing covers at all. Occasionally, they get it right. I, I think. mean, if they'd have done "Everlasting Love," I'd have, I'd have, I'd have got behind that. No, no. 
I, that song is 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 dull. I think. Yeah, it's and Bono isn't. His wardrobe hasn't improved at all. He's wearing this. I don't even know what that kind of like a Davy Crockett jacket with all the tassels on it. Yeah, I've got Cowboy Dracula question mark here. Um, I mean, he's he's kind of a... such an identity crisis. <laughs> um, yeah, well, like he says, he's a he's a nice bunch of guys. Um, quite cheap bony here. No mullet, thankfully. Got his hair nice and glossy, like some sort of lovable household dog. Yeah, it's well produced. The show, it's well produced. Well, speaking of um, outfits, though, guess who's pulled a little um, a little stunt here in terms of changing it up with his wardrobe? Are, are you going to say Larry? Yeah. What's he wearing now? Black t-shirt, blue jeans. Wow. Yep, completely different. So that's three t-shirts he's got because he he wore a red one on Red Rocks. Yep. So he's at least got three t-shirts. But I think same pair of jeans, do you reckon? Probably. Yeah. But I think he's. I think he manages to bring in this recklessness for uh, Joshua Tree and um, Rowland Hum by sticking to just the white t-shirts. But we'll see on the next episode, I suppose. Yeah. Right, so let's finish off the the episode. Um, is it a gig or is it a show? Wait, what, which are we talking We're about We're talking now? about Dortmund now. Wow, I'm jumping around a lot. Um, we are. <laughs> Uh, the Dortmund gig is a gig, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's a gig. There were elements of shows. It's a gig that wants to be a show. Yeah, that's what I mean. There's elements yeah. of it that that are achieving that they, kind I of... Don't, I got the sense that they don't know how to play an arena yet. No, I think they'd be first to admit that as well. Yeah, they seem very uncomfortable on stage. And in the bits where they, they could be enjoying it, they, they seem bored with the music. And the maturity of the songs that they're doing now mean that you can't act... That would jar so much with the kind of early um, character that Bono used to portray on the, you know, the, say at the marquee and stuff like that. So yeah, I think you've got the first examples of the Bono persona. I don't think Bono is because I think up to a point Bono was just still Paul Hewson to the mid eighties, and then I think this Bono persona, this idea of who that Bono character is, mm. is starting to form. It's not quite there yet. Mm. But it's getting there. Uh, I agree. It's a gig. It's not a show. Uh, there's a lot to be learned from here. A lot to be learned from. Yeah. Live Aid. I mean, it's very difficult to say what that is really. I mean, that's more of a moment. They they, uh, they maximized the minutes. The well, Bono did. The rest of them thought they'd absolutely screwed it up. But mm. Bono uh, made an impression. Made a moment. Made a memory. It was front page the next day. He he did the right thing. That's that's one time where Bono's tomfoolery has, mm. has has worked out well for the band. Yeah, and speaking of that Bono persona and tomfoolery and him growing into this Bono that can be recognised as a kind of, you know, um, the kind of the the character that we were talking about, very political, very um, confrontational. I think on the last show that we've talked about the Amnesty International Conspiracy of Hope one at Giant Stadium. With him speaking directly into the camera and him using that light, that's where we are getting that sense of Bono coming across. It's not fully formed, but it's interesting. Do you think that is a gig or a show? Are we on about Conspiracy of Hope now? Yeah. No, that's a gig. That's also a gig for me as well. Yeah, because they didn't play it. (laughs) They just did cover songs. 
It's um <laughs> for a lot of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. They could have they could have made that a good show. Mm. They could have made that a good concert, but I I don't think they did. Although the crowd were just happy to see you too. Maybe it's getting to that point after a conspiracy of hope where it almost doesn't matter what the play that you're going to see you too. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're getting to that point. Now. Well, this is constantly changing. The, 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 these shows, they're constantly uh, moving around and what they are. So it's quite hard to, to, you know, see the, the progression. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking how a lot of this kind of um, clash of different models or forms of U2 or iterations of the band goes right back down to the album and the recording thereof. Mm. So because they'd done all of that extra work with Eno and the experimentation, Brilliant in the Studio doesn't necessarily work live unless you've got all that extra production team for every gig, which they don't. Yeah, it didn't help Bono interact with the audience very much. Yeah. It's very solemn. Um, and you're and, not going to have... That, that's the key to you 2 Live. It's... it's you. Like, we're going watching you two in uh, Twickenham mm-hmm. in a few weeks' time. Uh, 110,000 people in that stadium that night. I'm looking forward to see you two play to 110,000 people. I want to hear 110,000 people sing Where the Streets Have No Name and Wither Without You. Mm. I can't wait to, to see that interaction. On, I think the Unforgettable Fire album didn't help the live show in mm. that sense. It wasn't an album of stone cold stadium rock anthems, mm. uh, and and I think that's what they're ready for. And that's what they need at this point. And I mean, even the songs that I really like and I think are up tempo on that album and that could have been classics, like Wire, like Indian Summer Sky, they they just seem to not be able to play them properly live. Yeah. You know, I, I think that they do exist some interesting versions. Although I will say, I mean, Bono in the live version of Wire is addicted to going like you know and using that weird delay on his on and you think what is going on here well he's starting doing his howling wind bit now hasn't he yeah he's he's starting wind oh god i think you've blown everyone's speakers out <laughs> but he starts doing that yeah. singing right in the back of his throat and there are occasions when that that persona does work so for example on um sort of homecoming where he's going like you know that kind of stuff it actually works really well and maybe there's they've clipped out the ones where he sounds bad i I like to think of pop mart era bono being trapped inside like Mm. wanting to do like wanting to mess around on stage but there's there's this he, he just can't let himself do it he can't be seen to you know be taking this fame lightly well yeah and i think this um i mean you just reminded me that i i mean because Bono is a bit insufferable to hang around with at, at this point. I mean, I love a lot of the Have recordings. you been hanging around with Bono without me? No, no, not with or without you. Um, I, like <laughs> it. I just mean that you've reminded me, oh, thank God we've got pop Bono to look forward to. We've got some <laughs> irony. you know. But I know we've got a slog of pomp to come through. So uh, I'm looking forward to everything we've got to discuss. This this was the one that I was not looking forward to discussing. Yeah. Because I, I've not found anything that I really love. I've not re- discovered anything that I really love about this period yet. It's kind of awkward for me to watch. And I guess a lot of that comes to the fact that anything that you really would love, like, for example, that version of A Sort of Homecoming, we already know that so well. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a couple of interesting versions of The Unforgettable Fire on there, but, again, hard song to replicate live. It's my favourite U2 song ever, and my favourite song 
it's not easy to replicate live. And they maybe they only did that on the more recent, you know, on the 360 tour. Yeah. So there we go. That was U2 and the Unforgettable Fire tour. Uh, is, is there anything else we need to say this year? Oh, are you going to be using your ticket this week? Oh, good. I hope we remembered, actually. No. Right. There we go. I think I think everyone could guess that yeah, I'm not and, that Yeah, and I still don't regret going to Red Rocks, so... Quid's in. Yeah, there, there we go. So I think that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much once again for joining us. Uh, please continue to follow us on SoundCloud. Just press that subscribe button. It's it's free. It won't cost you a penny. Um, yep, follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. That's where we update on just things, comment on things. I had a lovely picture of a cup of tea in a Joshua Tree cup, and I called it Joshua Tea. So there's highlights like that that you can classic expect. comedy on there. Classic yeah. comedy. Uh, next week we'll be back with we'll be finishing off the eighties and going through. The Joshua Tree Tour and the Love Town Tour. Oh, and one thing I'd like to say as we kind of approach a more uh, recent era is if anyone has been to see these particular shows that we're going to be talking about as we get closer and closer to the current day, do feel free to send us you know, your thoughts, you know, a quick um, thought or two about what it was like to experience them. Tyler and I only started going watching you two. I mean, due to just age and physics. <laughs> two thousand five. Yeah, I mean, we. I just missed the um, the elevation tour and was livid about that. As in, I only just got into them after it began and had passed me by. Um, so, any of these tours, you know, particularly before that two thousand point, if you went to them and you have any thoughts about it, do feel free to send them to us. We, I can't guarantee we'll read them out on the show, but it'd be fascinating just to, to hear about them, and we will if they're relevant to what we're going on about. So, yeah, do do that. Yep, so there we go. Thank you very much for listening this week. We'll be back next week with the next episode. And until then, I would like to say goodbye. Johnny, would you like to say goodbye? Au revoir. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi there, thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us on facebook.com forward slash review 2 you or on soundcloud.com forward slash review 2 or search for the Review 2 podcast on iTunes. You can also email us at review2contact at gmail.com. Please like, comment and subscribe. Thank you.